Good morning. Good morning. And let's go ahead and begin with prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for this opportunity to study. We, ask, we thank you for this Christmas season and the fact that you came to earth to bring us the truth and bring us the remedy for our, our sin condition and bring us back to eternity with you. We ask that your spirit will join us today as we study about the Holy Spirit. We pray in your holy name. Amen. And uh, announcement for those who are watching online and go home and watch the new upload, Dean has made a new graphic introduction. It's been two years since the graphics for the introduction to our class was updated. He updated today. And if you have a concern why he starts with the Venn diagram, the three scripture, science, and experience together, and it starts out with science first, and then experience, and then scripture comes in. If you go, why does he put science first? Um, Because what order did God give us the three evidences in? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and science was first, and then he created them, and they had life experiences. And it wasn't for several millennia. Then he gave them scripture later. So it's the order God gave them to us in. So our lesson for today, we are starting the new quarter on the Holy Spirit and spirituality. And the title for today's lesson is The Spirit and the Word. And if you looked in the introduction to the entire quarter, in the fifth paragraph, which is the top of page three, it says the following, looking at the contrast between the Holy Spirit, the Father, and the Son. It says, but there is a reason for this contrast. The Holy Spirit does not seek to be the center of attention. He plays more a behind-the-scenes role. The Father and the Son are more directly revealed in the Word, and that's because the Holy Spirit is there to point us not to himself, but to Jesus and what Jesus has done for us. They're drawing a contrast between the Holy Spirit and the Father and the Son, in their own words, in this contrast. So are they suggesting that the Father and the Son do seek to be the center of attention? Are they suggesting that? This is one of those things where an implied construct can be built in, and it is true the Holy Spirit doesn't seek to be the center of attention. That's exactly true. That's a fact, but but when you make a contrast between, we're contrasting something about the Holy Spirit, which means there's something different about the Holy Spirit than the other two, and what's different is the Holy Spirit doesn't seek to be the center of attention, it implies that the other two do, doesn't it? Is it true? Is it that Jesus and the Father seek to be the center of attention? Is that true? It's not true. None of the Godhead seek to be the center of attention. Look at the life of Jesus when he would perform a miracle. How often did he stand by and then and say, now, it's, hey, I'm the one that performed it. Hey, uh, let, let's put me on stage. Did he seek attention or did he slip away? And often, who, well, where's the guy who did it? Well, he's not here. He wasn't seeking attention. And when they did look to him, what did, what did he always say? I'm here to point you where? To the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And so you see that the, the father is, is interested in investing himself in, in uplifting the son. The son is interested in glorifying the father. The spirit is interested in promoting them both. And you don't see any one of them seeking to be the center of attention. That's how love works. Love's other-centered. So I just want to draw a contrast <laughs> to the way this was stated. I think their intention is, I think the fact that the Holy Spirit doesn't seem to be the center of attention is correct. The reason in, stated here, though, is incorrect. Okay, so what is the reason? Why isn't the Holy Spirit? Because in the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all equal, equal in divinity, equal in majesty, equal in power, equal in authority, all equal, they have amongst themselves in their wisdom decided to partake or to administer different roles. Any one of them could have done anything any of the others have done and do, but they've decided amongst themselves. So you think about parents in a home, husband and wife in a home. Anyone could do the dishes, anyone could cook, anyone could, could take the kids to school. But within the home, the parents, the husband and the wife, decide who's going to do what, mutually agreeable between them. And the Holy Spirit, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, together mutually agreed to do different duties or roles because each one of them has a heart to serve. Each one of them has a heart to give. Each one of them has a heart to love. And they all want to be participants in that process. Yes. Um, and Jesus said, I, can't, I come as one who serves. At, at the Last Supper, you know, it said, and Jesus, knowing that, realizing that all power in heaven and earth had been given to him, took out his outer garment, knelt down and washed his disciples' feet. Every one of them were going to betray him or desert him that day. And I think, I don't know, for those Downton Abbey fans, um, I think of Carson and the, and the people who are servants of this lovely big home. 
So the servant's rustling around morning till night doing everything so that the family can live and, you know, have a successful life. They're the ones who actually do all the work. Yeah, and, and this, is, this is the point. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are, the, are, are all working, but they have amongst themselves different roles. Voluntarily agreed upon, not because one is capable and one is not, is my view. And what are the different roles? As I understand it, the Father seems to be, if you look at the history, acts as the source of all that is good. The Son is the medium, mediator, advocate, conduit, agent, through which the Father reveals himself or acts and directly interacts with their creation on a physical level. And the Holy Spirit is the actualizer or applier of what the Father and the Son has achieved. Thus, God was in the Son, reconciling the world to himself. Jesus' work on earth was an acting out of the Father's heart. His completed mission and victory over sin are applied into the lives of believers by the work of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit actualizes or applies what they have achieved. In creation, we have the Father as the source, the Son as the architect, the designer, the builder, and the Holy Spirit as the actualizer or implementer of their design. So with this understanding, we realize that what Christ meant when he said, I do nothing of myself. Christ takes from the Father to fulfill the Father's purpose for his universe. So when we have this understanding, we can understand various Bible writers who describe Christ turning to the Father and asking the Father for things, not to persuade the Father to be kind or good or loving or merciful, but to receive from the Father the fullness of the Father's purpose for the Son then to carry out an achievement in God's universe. Another analogy I like for this is those connect-the-dot books. Every dot in the book would be analogous to a fact of history, creation in six days, fact of history, so to speak. Uh, uh, the, uh, God speaking and giving the law at Sinai, uh, the cross where Jesus died, these are facts of history. Each dot represents a fact, an actual historical act, and these dots were placed by Jesus as an outworking or representative fulfilling the Father's will, and the Holy Spirit comes along in our minds and connects the dots so that we can act comprehension and see what's really happening in reality. Sabbath lesson, the memory text, from the New King James Version, and it is from 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17, and it says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction and in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. That's the New King James, and here's the King James. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction or righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. A week or so, a couple weeks back, I mentioned that there are errors in the King James Bible. And I got a few emails about that. And I gave some examples. This was not an example I gave, but this is an example of an error in translation in the King James Bible. Anybody spot the error? And it's in both the New King James and the King James. If you're reading the King James, actually in the Bible, most King James have italicized words that were added that were not actually in the Greek. So it'll give you a clue if you look for the italicized words because those words were added. And it'll give you a clue where the error is. And here's the error. It's the first is. The first is has been added. It's not actually in the Greek. And so when they read, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, that is, is added. A more accurate translation would be all scripture given by inspiration of God is profitable. Take the is out. Now, does it make a meaningful difference? Well, it sure does, because is all scripture given by God's inspiration? Yes or no? No. (laughs) So? For instance, if you had a 1611 King James Bible, in the center of the 1611 version, the authorized official first version is the Apocrypha. Do you, most of us, believe the Apocrypha is inspired by God? Well, if you had the 1611 King James Bible, you would have this text that would say all Scripture is inspired and it's included in there. So now the Apocrypha, according to that text, is inspired. Explain what the Apocrypha is. The Apocrypha and the Pseudepigrapha are books like Ecclesiasticus and Maccabees. 
and some of these other books that are included in the Roman Catholic Bible still today, but most of the Protestant Bibles have removed those books because they felt they didn't really meet the, the standard of quality to be um, uh, inspired, and more were almost mythical uh, in nature. But that's not the only scriptures. How about the Koran? How about the Book of Mormon? These may not be our scriptures, but they're someone's scriptures. Do we believe those are inspired by God? And so a more accurate translation would be all scripture inspired by God is profitable. And that's absolutely true. If God's inspired the scripture, then it's profitable. But not all scripture is inspired of God. There's much scripture out there that my view hasn't been inspired. And so that's one of those translation errors. Only two paraphrases or versions I could find in English have actually put this right. One is the American Standard Bible, which says every scripture inspired of God is also profitable for teaching. And then the remedy paraphrase, it's got it that way as well. So do you see the difference? And it's not a nitpicking difference. It actually has a meaningful, applicable difference in how you understand and approach scripture. Sunday's lesson. First paragraph says, how does God ensure that his will is faithfully transmitted to fallen human beings? He does this in two major related activities of the Holy Spirit, revelation and inspiration. No doubt that as finite human beings with natures that are fearful and selfish, we have a quite limited, natural, innate understanding of reality and without the work of the Holy Spirit, we'll be incapable of figuring out the truth in the air. There's no doubt. So God is revealing truth to us. The lesson makes the distinction between revelation and inspiration. What do you understand the difference to be? Revelation versus inspiration. What is first revelation? It's very straightforward. It's revealing something. That's correct. That's all it is. Revealing or disclosing. In this context, it is the act of God revealing or disclosing truth about himself and the great controversy to us. That's in this context. Inspiration, in the because the- inspiration have a lot of meetings. That was very inspiring. I saw sunset. It was inspiring. You inspire me. I was inspired to do this. So inspiration have lots of meaning. But in this context, it has this definition: a divine influence directly and immediately exerted upon the mind or soul. Divine influence immediately enlightening the mind or soul. So as you hear these definitions, then doesn't inspiration then become a one means or method of revelation? Isn't that true? It's like a, under a revelation. God reveals One way God reveals is through inspiration. Are there other methods of revelation besides inspiration? I thought I'd list a few. Directly talking to intelligent beings. God talked to Adam and Eve in the cool of day. With Moses on Sinai. With Enoch. With Elijah. So God directly talking to us is one other additional way of revelation. How about through signs and wonders? Does God reveal himself in signs and wonders sometimes? How about written messages directly from God? We have the Ten Commandments, according to Scripture, was written by God himself. Written messages through angels, the handwriting on the wall. Message from an angel. God was revealing something there. Written messages through humans, and that's the Scripture. Verbal messages from angels. Gabriel talking to Daniel and Zechariah. Mary and the shepherds. Verbal messages through people, God's prophets and spokespersons. Nature, Romans one twenty, God's divine nature is seen in what he has made, so that men are without excuse. God is revealing himself in nature. Life experiences and circumstances. How about animals? Did Balaam get a message from an animal? Kind of an angel through an animal, but still. If, you, if your dog talks to you, I bet you're going to pay attention. <laughs> You might you might be calling me for a quick appointment. Exactly, snake talk to Eve too. That's right. Even Jonah, you know, who, who was spit out of a fish's mouth, gained more respect from the Ninevites since their god was a fish god. Yeah. How about rituals and symbols and holy days, sometimes called holidays? We're celebrating a holiday this weekend. Does God ever speak to us in rituals and symbols and holy days? Dreams and visions, and I put them last because I think dreams and visions, wouldn't that be one form of revelation that falls under the inspiration category? God working directly on the mind. Yeah. Any others? Any others you can think of? Yes. Yeah. True to conscience. 
Romans 2, Jeremiah 31. They have no scripture as we think of it, yet they are true to conscience. God is going to make a difference for anybody who wants to do what's right, what's willing to do what's right. So that's the Holy Spirit working directly, the inspiration aspect. So there is no scripture. And of course, with scripture today, you'd say, which of 50 plus translations are you going to use? Because I can use passages from one and get a little bit different of an idea than passages from another. And that's where Paul makes it clear in Romans 2 that you're talking about, which is a continuation of Romans 1, that the reason that you're able to find these truths is because God's nature is revealed in what he has made, so that men are without excuse. So the Holy Spirit has enlightened their mind to see God's design protocols operating in reality. And they're responding to that. Without the written word, you're exactly right. And Matthew 18 says, unless you're converted like a child, a child is not able to understand the complexity that adult does, but yet they are moved to do what is right or wrong. Of all these types of revelation that we just went through, all these revelations, what is the purpose of these various activities? What is the goal? What is God trying to achieve? It's communication, right? And what is he trying to communicate? What is the purpose of the communication? To achieve what? What is the primary, central, core reason for all of the revelation? Regardless of what method of revelation, all of it has one central, core purpose. What is it? Healing or relationships. Revealing. Reveal God, who he, who he really is. Some people use the difference between how people recall things, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, as a reason not to believe. Because they report things differently. I mean, I think I value it more because they are different people. If they persistently copied from one another, that might lend, you know, a a feeling like they're just copying from each other. But if, if all four of them give a different recollection because they're different people with different experiences and views on life. And God knows we're different people with different experiences and views on life. So he sends messages targeted to your specific well, th- what you're saying here those goes back to it segues perfectly what i just said what is the central purpose or reason for all of these different methods that god uses to communicate what is the reason restoration to reveal the truth about god the windows back to trust so that he can heal and store that's why life eternals they might have the right definitions of scripture no they might know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ. And now that knowing him wins to trust like a child. We trust. When we trust, we open the heart. The spirit transforms. So the communications, when you say there's differences in how the stories are recorded, let me ask you this. Are there differences in the character of God revealed amongst them? No. There is a harmonious revelation of the character of God revealed, even though they might have different numbers of fishes who were pulled out of the net. And that's the point. When people miss the purpose of the scripture and they think it's recorded to be the accurate fact bearer of how many fishes this person caught or how many miles that person walked, that's not its purpose. Those might have variations in, but its purpose is to reveal the truth about God and how he works and his methods and principles. There's consistency amongst all the writers there. So with this in mind, though, then we can think all these different methods. I listed a whole bunch of them. If the medium, therefore, the method that God uses to communicate with us, it becomes an obstacle to that communication. Instead of enlightening our mind, that very way of communicating darkens our minds, misinforms us about God, prevents us from seeing the truth, then what? It might need to be removed. And God did this twice with the Old Testament sanctuary system. Removed it for 70 years and let him brought it back. And then he removed it 2,000 years ago and it hasn't been brought back yet. Why? Because that method of communication became a, a source of darkening their minds about God rather than enlightening their minds about God. So God said that method isn't working anymore. We need to take it away. Because the goal is to enlighten you about me. So the lesson points out revelation is the process in which God makes himself and his divine will known to humans. The basic idea associated with the word revelation is unveiling or uncovering a disclosure of something otherwise hidden. Question, what has hidden what God is revealing? Why are these truths hidden? How did that come to be? Is God seeking to hide or obscure or keep things hidden. Particularly about himself, his nature, his methods, his character. Or has he constantly been the source of light, the source of truth? Christ is the light that lightens all men. 
I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus and the Father and the Spirit are constantly sources of light and truth, constantly seeking to enlighten all of their intelligent creatures that we continue an eternal journey, always moving forward in our comprehension and understanding. So why is it necessary for him to do these types of revelations? Well, some of them are for, like Daniel, the last chapters of Daniel, when Daniel's being shown amazing and horrible things in the future, and he, he uh, trembles and asks God, what does all this mean? And he's told, this isn't for you, it's for people at the end of time. It's for you, go your way, you'll rest, and at the end of time you'll get your inheritance. So he was given inspiration that he didn't even understand. So why is it necessary to reveal it at all? Because... The version of the, the truth about God has been obscured with a completely distorted and false version. How God conducts business, the way his universe runs, his reasons for doing things have been replaced with a false version that people see events, the flood. God's punishing wickedness. God will get you if you don't do what he said. He's the source of inflicted pain and suffering. And they misinterpret and they don't understand what's actually happening. So God is constantly seeking to reveal the truth because we're so corrupted in a distorted understanding. Last paragraph states, according to the apostle Peter, the prophetic message of the Old Testament was not of human origin. The prophets were moved by the Holy Spirit in such a way that the content of their message came from God. These men did not create the message themselves. They were merely the vessels of the message, not the originators. Peter was intentional in stressing the Spirit-inspired source of the prophecies. Though written by men, prophecy never came by the will of man. And it is the divine origin that gives the Bible its ultimate authority over our lives. A couple of questions. How does inspiration work? Does the Holy Spirit dictate to Bible writers what to write? Does the Holy Spirit enlighten Bible writers with truths, but the writers are then free to choose how they will express the truths? In some instances, but in other instances, God says, Write this down exactly as I tell you. Where, where, where do we find that? In the sanctuary, when he's describing how, for Moses, I want this to be exactly the, the same dimensions, I want this to be made exactly as the pattern I show you, and, and no uh, variation on that. But most of the things, they just inspire. But in occasions, he actually says specifically, this is what I want you to do. So we still don't have God dictating what to write. We have God giving precise instructions on, on the size and dimensions and colors and things. But Moses, and think about that, when you write a manual and, you're, and you keep the actual dimensions the same, it can be written a lot of different ways. Uh, there's a, as an author, I can tell you, I can have the same idea, and then it goes to the editor, and they take the same idea with the same facts, and it comes out written in a different way. But it hasn't changed the actual precision of what was written. So I still would dispute that what we find written in the Leviticus and, uh, and other places, that God was dictating, he was giving precision in size and dimensions and colors, but Moses left free how he would write that. But he was precise to the, those dimensions and so forth. I would agree with you there. So the question is, do we see God anywhere in Scripture, other than the Ten Commandments, on record as an author? And the reason it's important, because if you understand how inspiration works, are words of Scripture inspired? Or is it the men who were inspired and wrote ideas or themes or meanings, and it's those ideas and themes and meanings that we want to take away. It's not the words. Because if it's the words, then we can't replace those words with other words. Which means we can't take Hebrew and Greek words and replace those with English words because the English words are not inspired. Only the Greek and Hebrew words are, and we can't replace them. But if it's the themes and the ideas, then as long as we're true to the theme and the idea, we can replace the Greek and the Hebrew words with English and German and French and any other language as long as we keep the idea and the meaning the same. Yes? Much of Scripture is metaphorical, and it gives an idea but it does not give detailed specifics. And I think that uh, it, one example, at Christ's time, one of the big tensions were that the uh, scholars had 613 things that they had identified that told you exactly what to do. 
they had arguments on how to interpret the details even of the 613. Right. Christ lived an example. His parables were metaphorical. You could take the parable and from this you would get a conceptualization of how to relate. And you, different circumstances have different specifics, but the conceptualization still holds. You just talked about different circumstances, meaning that your Christ is teaching principles, and then those principles are applied differently depending on the circumstance. But the principle never changes. That's right, and and he, and he demonstrated in his life the relationship and the ultimate expression of how we should live is looking at. While Christ lived. And then that's the question of inspiration. So Christ didn't actually write any of the New Testament. He only wrote once in the same. Yeah, and we don't have that recorded. And so now we're coming back to looking at his life, we're looking at how does inspiration work. Yes. In the Gospels, how would the inspiration come into play when two wrote what they saw and the other two wrote what they was told? Exactly, and that's part of how the inspiration works. The Holy Spirit, and the lesson uh, points that out in one place, I think we're going to get to it, where sometimes the Holy Spirit inspires a person to write what they saw and what they experienced. Others inspires the Holy Spirit to research, and, and the Holy Spirit guides their mind in the research. For instance, the book of Luke, if you look in the book of Luke, right in the beginning, it talks about all the research that he did to prepare the book of Luke to send off to this particular ruler. But the Holy Spirit, if, you, if we believe the inspiration aspect, guided in that. Let me read this to you out of First Selected Messages 21. The Bible is written by inspired men, but it is not God's mode of thought and expression. It is that of humanity. God as a writer is not represented. Men will often say such an expression is not like God, but God has not put himself in words, in logic, in rhetoric, on trial in the Bible. The writers of the Bible were God's penmen, not his pen. Look at the different writers. It is not the words of the Bible that are inspired, but the men were inspired. Inspiration acts not on the man's words or his expression, but on the man himself, who under the influence of the Holy Ghost is imbued with thoughts. But the words receive the impress of the individual mind. The divine mind is diffused. The divine mind and will is combined with the human mind and will. Thus the utterances of man are the word of God. See how inspiration works. This is why we can replace the words. We have to think, what's the theme? What's the meaning? This is important. This is important so we don't do what was mentioned back here. Look at the Bible as a rule book, a code book, a declaration of actions that we are, uh, that we are to take without thought. It is not an instruction manual. Do this, do that but a revelation of God to us to enlighten us how reality works and bring us back to trust relationship with God. This requires, if you think, think through what I'm saying, it's not a rule book, it's not an instruction manual, read it, follow the instructions. It is a revelation of God to us that we have to read what's happening and comprehend the meaning and what's transpiring and what's being told. And this requires we think and reason. Following an instruction manual doesn't require much thought. Step one, do this. Step two, do that. Step three, do this. I'm just following the instructions. This is what it says to do. I have no idea why I'm doing it, but the instructions say to do it. Let's do it. Many religions approach their followers this way, including within Christianity. And it is not worthy of beings created in the image of God. It is not God's plan for us to be simply rule followers. Okay, question. I wanted to mention that, of course, we hear in the New Testament that Jesus spoke in parables so that the people could you know, relate to what he had said when they see these things later on. They can think on those things. It, years ago, I came across something I found very interesting that uh, was actually in, a, in a, a book that was written within the Catholic Church that said that they, people accuse us of making images, graven images and so forth, which are supposedly against the Ten Commandments or something. But what the Protestants do most often is take the scripture and make it a virtual image because of trying to make it so literal. Yeah, and then we're going we're gonna to unpack this. Let, let's keep going through the lesson because I think your point is well taken. We're going to unpack it. Yes. Early Hebrew was without punctuation. Yes, that's right. Very much open to interpretation of what it says. And, and the, the Greek, Greek New Testament as well. Written from stories that one father told another. Son and stuff. So, 
it was not later that they added the punctuation. So a lot, sometimes the Old Testament is full of, of you know, guesswork. And if you read the lexicons, there's many passages where they'll say the Hebrew here is unclear. The Hebrew here is unclear. Many passages say that. That's true. All right, so... The second question from what we just read in the paragraph of the lesson is about what gives the Bible authority. The lesson suggests its divine source gives it its authority. But what does that mean? Does it mean that the divine, all-powerful ruler who inspired the Bible will enforce what it says so you better do it or else? I think when you see the different writers of the Bible describing the same event, it gives you different views, and then you get a bigger picture of what the thought is. No doubt about that, but question of divine authority. I mean, what, what gives the Bible authority? It's divine origin. Does it mean the all-powerful ruler who inspired it will enforce it, so you better do it? Or does it, well, it contains the seal of God. We, we know all about that. And since it's contained the seal, it's a proper legal document. And if you don't follow the legal binding, then you're going to be legally accountable because it's got the God seal on it. Is that what it means? Or, because the divine source is the source of all truth, and therefore the Bible contains truth, and truth itself is authoritative. Think that through. What gives something authority? How it functions in reality. Which is truth. Yes. Yes. Yeah. First thing that comes to my mind is... Scripture simply means writing. It is not limited to the biblical books. Any writing is a scripture. And so any writing can be inspired or not inspired. And, and, and inspired by different sources. Different sources. Number two, how does God reveal his will to us? There is a lot of argument how God reveals anything to us. Our position is strongly influenced by Sister White. You quoted from her writing. Yes. Now the point is, that's her opinion. Was she inspired? We're, let, let, I'm not going to no, this, this thought is going to unpack here just a minute too. Both of your thoughts are coming in the lesson. God reveals his will to us in a way that we can understand. That's exactly right. He has to use our language. Ellen White wasn't given Babylonian language. No, this is, this is beautiful. So let, let, let's keep on, because there's some real fun stuff I want to get to the lesson today. I think we're going to have fun with it. Monday's lesson, inspiration is the term used to describe God's influence through the work of the Holy Spirit and transmitting his message through human instruments. Um, has, so to your point, has inspiration stopped with the writing of the Bible? You just suggested people are still being inspired. Are people today inspired? Today, living today, not living 100 years ago, living today, still inspired by the Holy Spirit. If they are inspired by the Holy Spirit today, is their inspiration less inspired than the Bible writers? Or are they inspired with the same inspiration that inspired the Bible writers? I think you do need to have knowledge of what the Bible says in order to compare whether or not it's inspirational leading by God. You shouldn't be have to add. So now you've just set up a test that we compare to, but that really wasn't the question, because that's a good question, and we'll come to that, because the next one is, how do we know? But the first question simply is, do we believe that the Holy Spirit inspires people today? And if the Holy Spirit inspires people today, is it a watered-down, less valuable, less authoritative, less truthful inspiration than the apostles had? Just think that through, because that's, that's that, I'm not, we're not saying it out loud, that's what's assumed. Anybody who writes today, it's not as worthwhile, valuable, authoritative, truthful, inspired, insightful as what was written by the apostles. I think the Holy Spirit inspires you to search for truth, and when it does, then it is inspired, even though it's modern day. So how do we tell if someone bears the mark of inspiration of God or not? How do we tell? This is... Uh, and you can decide whether you value these insights or not, because I think it's the right thing to do. This is out of Acts of the Apostles, page 61. Talking about the time of Christ, and, and put yourself in that setting now, because the, we look back with veneration on the New Testament and the Apostle writers. But if you were a contemporary living at the time, and you grew up with Peter, who was your next-door neighbor, or Paul, and, and you went to church with them, and, and, they, and they suddenly come with a new message that you haven't heard before. 
Do you immediately go, well, they're inspired. I believe that. Or do you question, hey, wait, this is not what, I've been to the church school, I went to all grades, I graduated with my degree from Southern, you know, or wherever the church school is, the, the synagogue schools, and, and this is not what we were taught in the synagogue schools. So, But yet, I believe you're inspired, so you must be right, and, and our church schools are wrong. Do you see how there could have been a problem there? This is in that context, talking about the inspiration and what prevented them from accepting the inspiration. It says, the enemies of the disciples could not but be convinced that Christ had risen from the dead. Next words. The evidence was too clear to be doubted. Not the declarations, not the proclamations, the evidence. And remember, if you read the New Testament, there's a lot of evidence, not just Christ rising, but over 500 other people rose walking around among the city that people knew had been dead. I mean, this is, think that through. Seriously, this would be quite startling, wouldn't it? The evidence was too clear to be doubted. Nevertheless, they hardened their hearts, refusing to repent of the terrible deed they had committed in putting Jesus to death. Abundant evidence that the apostles were speaking and acting under divine inspiration had been given the Jewish rulers, but they firmly resisted the message of truth. Christ had not come in the manner that they expected. And though at times they had been convinced that he was the son of God, yet they had stifled conviction and crucified him. In mercy, God gave them still further evidence. Again, third time in this one paragraph, the word evidence is used. Notice, it is not declaration. It is not command. It is not claim. It is not proclamation. It is not order. It is not directive. The word used is evidence because evidence requires something of us that proclamations and orders and directives do not. Proclamations and directives and orders do not require us to think, to reason, to appreciate the meaning of what the evidence is saying. They simply require compliance and obedience. But evidence requires us to engage. Let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they'll be white like snow. Evidence requires a different order of processing inside the intelligent being. And so further evidence, and now another opportunity was granted them to turn to him. Another opportunity, how? Because evidence, and they had another opportunity to reconsider. To reconsider what? Their biases, their prejudices, their preconceived ideas, their expectations, their indoctrination, their doctrines that they'd been teaching and preaching for decades. They had another opportunity to reconsider their mindsets. He sent the disciples to them to tell them that they had killed the Prince of Life. And in this terrible charge, he gave them another call to repentance. But feeling secure in their own righteousness, the Jewish teachers refused to admit that the men charging them with crucifying Christ were speaking by the direction of the Holy Spirit. Question is, these men were inspired. These religious church leaders, conference officials, would not recognize the inspiration. Why? Because they had preconceived expectations. And this did not fit their preconceived expectations. They used the Old Testament scriptures to support their preconceived expectations. Do we see this happening today? Religious leaders study for years, teaching certain viewpoints and having certain expectations, writing articles and and books and resisting any advancing truth that doesn't meet with their expectation. This is out of Christ Triumphant, page 331. We are not to set our stakes and then interpret everything to reach this set point, which means we are not to go to Scripture to prove that what we've already taught is true. Here is where some of our, our means what group? Seventh-day Adventist she's speaking to right here, that particular group. Our great reformers have failed. And this is the reason that many who today might be mighty champions for God and the truth are warring against the truth. Ooh. Ooh. People in our own church that are, that, that are warring against the truth. Why? Because they have preconceived ideas and use the Bible to prove those ideas true rather than learning from the Bible. She goes on. God designs that we should be learners, first from the living oracles and second from our associates. This is God's order. The word of God is the great director, detector 
of error. To it, we believe everything must be brought. The Bible must be our standard for every doctrine. We must study it reverently. We are to receive no one's opinion without comparing it with Scripture. And you know, I say this in here all the time. Don't believe anything I say because I say it. Check it out for yourself. Compare it to Scripture. Look at the evidences. Come to your own conclusion. Third paragraph states, while many parts of the Bible are a result of God's direct supernatural revelation, not everything in the Bible was revealed in that manner. Sometimes God used biblical writers in their careful personal investigation of things or in their use of other existing documents to reveal and communicate his message. Thus, all parts of the Bible are revealed and inspired. This is the reason Paul states that whatsoever was written has been written for our instructions, the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. The God who speaks and who created human language enables chosen people to communicate in human words the inspired thoughts in a trustworthy and reliable manner. So one of the first things we approach scripture is just to be sure that somebody says, the Bible says, the Bible says to go make sure that you have an actual translation that's fairly accurate and the Bible actually says what somebody says it's saying. Because you might get a lot of the Bible says, but it's actually not in the Bible. But once you make sure that the Bible says it, then the next important element is to inquire what was the point of saying it? Why did it say it? Why is it recorded in scripture? What is it to teach for instance, we just finished the book of Job, whole quarter of the book of Job. And we found recorded in scripture many arguments put forth by Job's friends that were proven to be false arguments, not true. Lies even, if you want to use a strong word. Why are these misunderstandings and falsehoods of Job's friends recorded in scripture? Were the lies and falsehoods inspired by the Holy Spirit? Were they? No, but the scriptures are inspired by the Holy Spirit, and there they are. What, how do you make sense of that? For teaching. Yeah, for teaching. This is exactly right. The Holy Spirit inspired that the events, including the interaction between Job and his friends, be recorded so that we might learn lessons from those events, not the words of those friends being inspired, but the whole story and the events going on. And what do we learn? What's the inspiration? What's the Holy Spirit had to teach us? That you can have sincere people with good intention, trying to be helpful, that are actually bringing falsehoods and lies, and if you believe them, they'll lead you astray. You better think for yourself and know the truth for yourself. There's a, there's a powerful story there. That's one of the lessons in the book of Job. It's not the only ones, many. We won't go back and revisit all those. Thus... The inspired message of Job is not what his friends said, but observing what actually happened in the account of events so that you have to reason and think. It's evidence, okay? Evidence rather than declaration. Which with this in mind, turn to Tuesday's lesson, and it says, The word of God is trustworthy and deserves full acceptance. It is not our task to sit in judgment over Scripture. Scripture, rather, has the right and authority to judge us. Quoting Hebrews, For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing of soul and spirit, joint and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. What does it mean? What is the... What is the, the we don't have right to make judgments about the Scripture? It's a responsibility to do that. Does that mean we have to take it as it says and do what it says? Or is it okay to read it? Is it okay to read scripture and conclude that God's specific instructions should not be practiced by us today? Is it okay to read scripture? And, and when one of God's prophets comes with a message declared to be from God, shown by God, that we actually conclude that in fact it's not. Some things were given specifically, like when he gave the rules for government of the Israelites, stone people for this, stone people for that. Should we still be doing that now? Let me give you some examples. Deuteronomy 14.22. I'll let you decide. Do we sit in judgment or we say, it's not our place to judge. God has instructed this. We should follow. Deuteronomy 14.22-26. Be sure to set aside a tenth of all that your fields produce each year. Eat the tithe of your grain, new wine, and oil, and the firstborn of your herds and flocks in the presence of the Lord your God at the place he, he will choose as a dwelling for his name so that you may learn to reveal the Lord your God always. But if that place is too distant and you have been blessed by the Lord your God and cannot carry your tithe because the place where the Lord will choose to put his name is too far away, then exchange your tithe for silver and take the silver with you and go to the place the Lord your God will choose. Use the silver to buy whatever you like, cattle, sheep, wine, or other fermented drink or anything you wish. 
Then you and your household shall eat there in the presence of the Lord, your God, and rejoice. So should we take the instructions of the Lord and take our tithe and buy fermented drink and rejoice each week at church? And in the Hebrew, there's no argument over which this is. There's specific words for unfermented and fermented wine, unlike the Greek New Testament, which word can go either way. This is specific for the intoxicating fermented type of wine. We don't want to sit in judgment of the scripture, do we? We should just take it and follow its instructions. Are we all comfortable doing that? Or do we think, wait a second, what was going on in that setting? Why is it written this way? What was happening? What was the likelihood in an arid society in which wine would be stored in goat skins and other vessels like that, that over the course of months when they're traveling to a faraway place, they're going to have fresh grape juice? Anybody believe that? How about this one? Oh, and you mentioned, do we stone Sabbath breakers today? Clear instruction, we should. Or do we allow pastors and preachers to take the office who need glasses? Clear instructions, they have vision problems, they cannot be a priest. Could not be a priest with vision problems. Do we allow all pastors that need glasses cannot hold the office anymore? Got to follow what the scripture says. Yes? Well, I was just going to comment on the wine. The fact is that uh, if you had an ailment that uh, might relate to contamination, even if it were slightly, uh, you know, slightly alcoholic because of what fermentation over time, it might be healthier for you in that circumstance uh, than doing something else. That's likely what Paul was advising Timothy to do in the New Testament, for drink a little wine for his stomach, because they didn't have uh, chlorinated water sources, and he very well been picking up some parasites. It may have been just yeah. a very natural thing to say at that time. It's, it, so often we fail to deal with the context. But are we sitting in judgment now? Are we just taking it as it reads? How about this one? Here's a good one. This is out of um, 1 Kings 22. This is where Ahab wants to go to war with Ramath Gilead, and Micaiah, the prophet of the Lord, comes. And it says, but Micaiah said, as surely as the Lord lives, I can tell him only what the Lord tells me. So we have a clear declaration from the prophet of God that whatever comes is going to be from what the Lord says. And he goes on to say, I saw uh, Israel scattered on the hill like sheep without a shepherd. And the Lord said, these people have no master. Let them each go to his home in peace. The king of Israel said to Joshua, didn't I tell you? In other words, go home, don't go to war. Didn't I tell you he never prophesies anything good to me, but only bad? Micaiah continued. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord. This is vision now. He's got a vision. I mean, how, who would he question, right? And I saw the Lord sitting on his throne with a host of heaven standing around him on his right and on his left. And the Lord said, who will entice Ahab into attacking Ramoth Gilead and going to his death there? One suggested this and another that. Finally, a spirit came forward, stood before the Lord and said, I will entice him. By what means, the Lord said, I will go out and be a lying spirit in the mouth of his prophets, he said. You will succeed in enticing him, said the Lord. Go and do it. So now the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these prophets of yours. The Lord has decreed disaster for you. Well, who am I to question? Clearly the Lord sends lying spirits and causes prophets to lie. We can't send judgment on scripture. Don't make any judgments about this. Do you see I have a little issue with this idea that they're trying to put forth? Or do you actually make judgments about this? Of course you do. This is why the Bible, Paul says in Romans 14, every person must be fully persuaded in his own mind. You must weigh the evidences. You must come to your own conclusion. You must make your own judgment about the meaning of these things. And ultimately, the ultimate judgment you have to make, fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come. The hour in which you must judge. Are you going to find him trustworthy and open your heart to him? Or are you going to find him untrustworthy and beg to be protected from him? Ultimately, yes. When the Bible says to try the spirits, what spirit are we actually trying? Would that be the same as judgment? Trying the spirit, yeah. Uh, testing to see, testing the spirits, yes. Seeing whether these are in fact consistent with the word of God, operating in his methods and principles. One way to test is to see to the law and to the testimony. What's it say? But most, the way I was raised, to the law meant to the Ten Commandments. That's not what it means. To the law. To the design protocols, the law of love, the law of liberty, the law of worship, the law of exertion, to God's way of doing business. If it's not in harmony with God's methods, how he's constructed reality to work, then if it's imperialistic, if it's dictatorial, if it's coercive, it is not from God. God doesn't work this way. To the law. 
to God's design. That's why Jesus said, I did not come to destroy the law, but fulfill it. If, if the law was changed, all the universe would fall apart because the law is the protocols upon which reality exists. So, how do we understand this passage to Micaiah? Well, who, from Micaiah, who was Micaiah speaking to? Ahab. Who did Ahab worship? Baal. Baal. Baal was the god of thunder, who was the predecessor to Thor, the Norse god of thunder. Whenever there was lightning and thunder and loud winds and rain, Ahab saw his god acting. This god is alive. My god is powerful. My god is, is strong. This is who, this is, this is the mindset of Ahab. Now, what's Ahab going to do if we present gentle Jesus who would never lift a finger to protect himself and would allow his own creatures to kill him? Is Ahab going to go, well, that makes sense to me. I'll, I'll, I'll buy into that. No, he's not. Ahab's mindset is one, God is powerful, God controls, God punishes wickedness, and therefore, to send a message, what was said here by Leon a moment ago, God speaks a language that the people receiving the message can comprehend. And Ahab needed a message spoken in his construct that would inform him that what he had been told by these prophets was false. And the only way that he would be able to process that was, well, if these prophets said it, in the universe I operate in, then God must be the one who, who made them do that. So God has constructed this scenario, and now Micaiah is telling me what the real story is. But if you look, it's a message of mercy, of mercy to try to turn him. And you notice the message is said in there twice. Don't go. You're going to get destroyed. Don't go. Think about who, who this is. Think about what it says about God that this Ahab, who is a Baal worshiper and turning the nation away from him, God is still sending a message of mercy to how many parents, if you had a child who was into wild living and doing all kinds of destructive things in the community, who at some point found themselves distraught and called you for advice, would refuse to give them helpful advice? He calls Micaiah. God's going to give him the best message he can to try to prevent him from going to disaster. Beautiful. I was trying to get my mind around earlier the, the God that would allow himself to be murdered on the cross and then still go to great lengths to provide evidence to those who did it Yep. Through the apostles, yep. that he's still trying to give them evidence. He's still trying to reach them. He's still trying. He still loves them. So, how do we understand the Hebrews text? This is out of my paraphrase, uh, the remedy about the, the the scripture judging. For the word of God is living and active, revelation of truth about God, the, His methods and principles, and the real basis of life in the universe. It is sharper than a two-edged sword. It penetrates the deepest recesses of the mind and separates thoughts and feelings, habits and motives. It also diagnoses the true intentions, attitudes, and principles of the heart. That's what it does. It's not this judicial act of judgment. It's bringing to conviction the real condition of the heart. That's what it does. Yes? There are a couple ways of looking at the word judgment. If I arrive at a conclusion and then look for evidence to support that conclusion, that's one way. The other way is look at the evidence and then based on the evidence, reach a conclusion. Yes, yes. It's more discerning. That's correct. All right, we're running out of so much time. Okay, Wednesday's lesson, it says the Holy Spirit is instrumental not only in giving us the written word, but also in helping us understand it properly. Human beings are darkened in their understanding of truth. They are by nature alienated from God. That's why the same Spirit who revealed the and inspired the word of God is the one who enables us to understand it. The problem is that the Bible is an obscure book. Uh, the, problem, the problem is not that the Bible is an obscure book. The problem is our sin-tainted attitude toward God who reveals himself in the Bible. So, does this mean that we really can't have spiritual insight, spiritual wisdom, spiritual understanding without the Holy Spirit? It means that, doesn't it? And I think that's true. I think we'd all agree. In our own sinful hearts and minds, we don't comprehend reality correctly. Spiritual things are spiritually discerned. Then, if that's true, what is it that determines whether one has actually been enlightened by the Holy Spirit to have true spiritual discernment and wisdom? How do we know whether somebody has that? Get ready. Is it when they graduate with a degree from one of our seminaries? Is that how we know? If they graduate with a degree from the seminary, then we know they've been enlightened by the Holy Spirit. Because what are the criteria that many churches use for leadership positions, pastoral positions, and so forth? Isn't it graduating from the seminary with a degree? Isn't that how we know that someone's fit to be in that office? Interesting. 
If education in a parochial school is the measure of service in the church, why didn't Jesus go to a parochial school of his day? This is out of uh, Desire of Age 70. The child Jesus did not receive instruction in the synagogue schools. As he advanced from childhood to youth, he did not seek schools of the rabbis. When they asked the question, how does this man have letters having never learned, it didn't mean he was unable to read, but merely that he did not receive rabbinical education. Since he gained knowledge as we may do, he intimates acquaintance with the scripture, his intimate acquaintance with the scripture shows how diligently his early years were in given to the study of God's word. And spread out before him was the great library of God's created works. Apart, uh, he gathered stores of scientific knowledge from nature. From early, his earliest years, he was possessed with one purpose. He lived to bless others. For this, he found resources in nature. His third time. New ideas of ways and means flashed to his eyes. He was seeking to draw from things seen, illustrations by which to present the living oracles of God. His spirit was to, uh, was to the influence of nature. Over and over it goes, thus to Jesus, the significance of the word and the works of God unfolded, and he was trying to understand the reason of things. Every child may gain knowledge as Jesus did. Jesus' education, combination of Scripture harmonized with science and nature. Because God constructed reality to run on the principles of giving and beneficence. We see this in nature. I'm not going to give you all those examples again today. Design law stuff, though. This is the key. And then in the story of Jesus, page 30, talks about the, the synagogue schools, and it said, Jesus did not go to these schools, for they taught many things that were not true. Could we say that when one is lightened by the Spirit, they are able to integrate Scripture and God's design and reality together. And what should we have concerns if leaders actively refuse to do this and state we should disavow science and nature and only use Scripture isolated from reality? Should we have concerns about leaders who do this? Yes, we should have serious concerns. In fact, I would tell you it's an evidence of their disqualification to be in any leadership role. But many people in, in church leadership that I've spoken to, this is their prime, this is their prime directive. Sola scriptura. We cannot bring science and evidence in to bear. Only scripture. It's exactly opposite of how Jesus taught to do things. Why? Because it was said earlier. When you use scripture disconnected from its anchors in how reality works, then you can interpret it to say almost anything you want. But when you anchor scripture into design law and how reality works, then certain interpretations are ruled out. It cannot mean that because that's not how God constructed reality to work. And then in closing, wow, there's several other, other points mentioned. How do we tell if somebody then is inspired? We don't tell by whether they have a theological degree. I'll leave you this one to, to contemplate over the holiday weekend. Do we tell whether someone's inspired by gender? <laughs> because our church seems to put that as a criteria. You cannot be inspired to lead in the church unless you have the proper anatomical equipment. That's how we tell. It is not biblical. It's not scriptural. It's not evidence-based. It's not consistent with God's design. He created them to be equal. Sin divided the original unit pair. That division is fostered by the works of Satan. God's plan is that all should come together under one head, at one minute, united again in love. And thus, my view is that we leave it to the Holy Spirit to equip those who are willing, and it's up to the Holy Spirit to empower various people. And it's such a complete Oh, I don't even know the word is so far out from reality that the Seventh-day Adventist Church, whose prime founder was a woman that we advocate being inspired by the Holy Spirit, takes a position that women can't have inspired leadership roles in the church. It is absolute incredulous to me. And you should think through, why is this happening? It is not happening, in my view, from the work of the Holy Spirit. It's happening from another spirit to keep division, to cause fragmentation, and to... And, and to seek power and control. It's about power and control in institutional systems. That's what it's about. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that your Holy Spirit, you, the Son, are not 
prejudicial, that your principles, your love, your design, your protocols work in all hearts and all minds who are receptive, regardless of race and creed and, and uh, background and language and gender, that you have a desire to heal and save us all, and you will put all of us to good purpose in your plan if we would simply open our hearts, embrace and choose the truth, and follow where you lead. We ask that you will do so in our lives now. We pray in your holy name. Amen.